Hey friends, Pastor Brandon here, and we are so excited that you logged on to stream our sermon content here at Community Covenant Church. We pray that it is uh, helpful, enjoyable, and that will help you grow into all that God has created you to be. We have other ways that we help you grow here. And first, that is through our gatherings on the weekend. Um, and it's also in groups as we gather together as the church uh, beyond the weekend. Um, and we are applying this sermon content and the gospel to our lives. And and then lastly, through mission opportunities, both serving inside and outside the local uh, church. And so what we pray is that this sermon content uh, is in no way replacing a meaningful relationship between you and a local church, whether that's our church or another one in our area. Uh, we just would pray that this is supplemental to you and not a replacement of a meaningful engagement with a local church. And so just praying uh, for you as you continue to grow and pray that God continues to uh, help you connect to a group of people that love you and know you. Blessings. have a sleepless night? Yeah, so there are times in my life where I've had sleepless nights uh, because I was anxious about something, and then there are times like last night where I've had sleepless nights because I am so amped up uh, about what's about to take place over the coming days. I'm excited to share this morning. I'm excited for the 200 kids that are going to be 186 plus child care. Uh, the 186 kids that are going to be walking through the door tomorrow morning and the 100 volunteers. Like, I am just beyond beyond excited for all that God is going to be doing um, over the next couple of days. and uh, So I, I'm excited to share with you, um, but I'm a little jittery because I haven't slept at, at all. So bear with me. Uh, we are continuing on, as Pastor Brandon said, in our, kind of our summer challenge theme, which is Amped, which is live fully alive. It comes from John 10.10, which says, I've come so that you can have life and have it in the fullest possible way. In John 10.10, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I've come so that they may have life, and I want them to have it in the fullest possible way. So we've been walking through what it looks like to live fully alive and how we can accomplish that. So a couple weeks ago, we started with the story of Joseph, and we, we talked about how we can live fully alive by living every day like we know that God is with us, because he absolutely is. Last week, Pastor Brandon uh, shared with us how we can live fully alive by living every day like we know Jesus is alive because he is, and we can allow the resurrection to shape our lives. Uh, there's so many implications to the resurrection. And this morning, we're going to talk about how we can live fully alive, how we, can, how we can have life and have it to the fullest extent, have it to the fullest, because we're going to live every day like people matter. We want to live every single day like people matter. So we're going to get right into it this morning, and we're going to go all the way to the beginning. We're going to start at Genesis 1. We've never do that here as a church. <laughs> we're we're going to start in Genesis 1 and 2. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we learn that God created everything. God created the heavens and the earth and all that is within it. And after each day of creation, uh, the Lord stepped back and he looked at what he did and he said something. What did he say? It was good. He looked and he was like, man, I'm good. He is good. He stepped back at the creation and he marveled over it and said, this is good. And he did that day after day after day. And then he made man and woman. 
And he made man and woman in his perfect, perfect image. And he looked at them and he said, Aw, you stole my thunder. He, he didn't just say it was good. He said it was very good. He looked at you and he looked at me and he said, you are very good. You were created in my perfect, perfect image. Everything was just as it should be. Everything was just as it should be. So the Lord rested. He enjoyed that peace, shalom, everything as it should be. Until Genesis 3 when it wasn't. We never talk about Genesis 3 either, do we? The relationship between God and his creation in an instant was fractured. The relationship between God and his creation was fractured. And there was this giant chasm between our creator and his creation. There is this giant chasm between God and man. So throughout the Old Testament, the the first half of the Bible, the first 75% of the Bible, maybe we'll say, um, the life before Jesus, everything that took place, be, excuse me, the, everything that took place before the life of Jesus, what's happening there is there, there's 613 laws, 613 laws, 613 commandments, all of them with one singular purpose, to try to close that gap. 613 rules. I can't even imagine what it's like to walk around and to live and trying to follow and obey 613 rules all simply to close the gap between us and God. If we fast forward a couple thousand years into the New Testament, into Jesus' life, Jesus, one day, he's in the temple. Several days before, he's uh, about to be crucified for us. And he's, and he's teaching, and, he, and he's teaching in, in the Pharisees of the law, and, uh, excuse me, the Pharisees and, and religious leaders and teachers of the law, all these sorts of people are gathered around, they're listening to him, and as he's teaching, they see an opportunity to try to trick him up. So what do they do? They ask him a question, they say, all right, Rabbi, what is the most important commandment? And he responds real quickly with, with love God, just love God. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind, spirit, body, everything you are, love God. We know this, love God. But then before they could say anything, he sneaks in, sneaks in one more thing. He says, but you need to love your neighbor as yourself. So we go from 613 commandments, and Jesus all of a sudden boils it down to two. Two things, love God and love others. And then only a couple of short days later, the night before he dies, he says, really, I want you, I want you to love others as I have loved you. I want you to love others as I have loved you. And this doesn't mean that we're not called to love God. When Jesus says, a new command I give you, love others as I have loved you, it doesn't mean we're not called to love God. It means, quite the contrary, this is in fact how we're going to love God. I want you to love others the way that I have. When you do that, you are loving me. This is how we love God, by loving others. So this morning, to live lives that are fully alive, we need to love others the way that Jesus loves us. We need to love others the way that Jesus loves us. We need to look at the world around us and see it through the eyes of God so that we can love others that way. We need to live every single day like people matter. And we do that because people matter to God. And so when we care for what God cares for, we're loving God. And that's how we're going to live fully alive. A couple of years ago, it was August, let's see, this is 2018, so it was August 2016, uh, my family went on a little bit of a trip. We went down to Florida in the middle of August. When I wake up, I sweat. 
right? Like middle winter. Like I, I'm sweating now. Um, August, Florida. It was literally like 130 degrees. It, it was maybe not, but it, it was it was bad. So anyway, we're down there and, and we're having a great time. It's uh, Katie, my four beautiful children, uh, my sisters, my mom. Like we're just having a wonderful family vacation. On the last day, we decided to go to a water park, and uh, I think it was uh, it was Aquatica we went to. It was one of the Sea World parks, and uh, we're there and we're having some fun. And uh, definitely not a Disney park. Definitely not a Disney park. But we're there, and we're playing in the children's area. And it's not, like, secluded. Like, it's not, like, one way in, one way out. So, like, kids are running everywhere. And when I say there's thousands of kids, there's li- I'm not exaggerating. I exaggerate a lot. There are literally thousands of kids running around everywhere. And they all look the same. Do you know how many kids this tall with blonde hair and little mermaid bathing suits there are? All of them. All right, every single one of them. So like, I'm going around like grabbing my kids and like, that's not mine. That's you know, and I'm and I'm running around and it's seriously like people would be like, we gotta get this guy out of here. But I wasn't the only dad doing this. And, and so Katie and I, we became very, very, very anxious, very anxious in this moment. So we decided that we needed to kind of slow things down a little bit. So we thought that it would be fun to maybe go in the lazy river. You don't know yet. All right. <laughs> So we decided to go in the lazy river. And uh, so we get our four children. Uh, our oldest is six. Our youngest is one. And we proceed to go into this little spot. We can't see it. We just know that there's a river over there. And, and we walk in there, and there's no tubes, which was kind of odd. Um, although that excited me, because I don't really fit in an inner tube very well. <laughs> try to get that image out of your head. Uh, no, seriously. Try to get it. Um, so there's no tubes, but they said all the kids need to wear a life vest. I'm like, it's just a lazy river. And uh, this area, the water was really calm because there was, there was a break. There was a kind of like this V, people coming out of the river and then people going in. But you couldn't really see where the river was. So Katie and I, we grab our four children, Emma, Ava, Addison, and Frankie. We put life vests on them. And then uh, we start to make our way, and the lifeguard just dismisses us. And we go, and man, this is not a lazy river. Um, this is like a rapid, I think it's called Roa's Rapid River or something like it turns out. Um, this is like white water um, without tubes and you just let it take you. Um, but I have a one-year-old and a two-year-old and a four-year-old and a six-year-old and a wife who's extremely anxious at this point. And we're going and we're doing everything we can to hold on to each other. We literally have kids like floating on their backs screaming and there's lifeguards just looking at us. You know what I'm talking about? The lifeguards at the water parks, they just look at you with their whistle don't jump, like that sort of thing. It was awful. It was absolutely awful. And, and we're doing everything we can to stay together. And, and you know what happens? We get separated. And I'll tell you what, it was the most scary moment of my life. Because here I am, I have Katie and I have Emma and Addison and Frankie. But little Ava, four years old, sweet, as innocent as she can be, she got separated from Katie and I. And it was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. This thing, it seems like it was miles long. It was probably only a couple thousand feet long, maybe. But there's one way in and there's one way out. Which means my little girl was just floating through this river. She doesn't know how to swim. Waterfalls and people everywhere. And she has no idea where to go. And I have no idea how to find her. But I'll tell you what. There is this separation. I'm sorry, I was... When I think about it, you get anxious. You can visualize that. You can, you can imagine. This is a true story. This really happened. And, 
You, as a parent, your heart sinks when you lose your child. See, there was this separation that took place between my daughter and I. And there was absolutely nothing, nothing in all of God's creation that was going to prevent me from finding her. I didn't care how cool the lifeguard thought he was. I didn't care what the rules were. I didn't care who I had to knock over. I don't care what rides I had to run through. I don't care if I jumped through the slot. It did not. I would have gone through a tank of sharks to find my daughter and to save her. There was nothing, nothing that was going to keep me from doing this. I was prepared to move heaven and earth to find her, no matter the cost. I'm not a former CIA operative, um, but those of you that have seen Taken, anyone? Liam Neeson? Yeah, like I went Liam Neeson in this moment, right? Like if I had a son, like, I'm going to find you, you know? Seriously, like it was, it was unbelievable. But when I finally found her, this is the thing. When I finally found Ava, it had been like 15, 20 minutes at this point. It was a long time. When I finally found her, she was cuddled up on the side of the, the river. And I went and I wrapped my arms around her. And I just told her everything was going to be okay. I told her, Daddy's never going to let anything ever happened to you. And I started to sing a song to her that my dad sang to me when I was a kid. It's called Walk Through the Rain. And I just sang this song to her and tried to comfort her. And eventually Katie and the rest of the kids came back and got to us and we got the heck out of there. <laughs> we're like, we're going home. Trip is over. Trip is over. But as I, as I look back at this experience, as I look back at this trip, I can't help but think about our relationship with God. I can't think about our relationship with God. In that moment, I pursued my daughter with absolutely everything I am. I am not exactly Michael Phelps, but I'll tell you what, I swam through that rapid river like I was. I pursued my daughter with every ounce of my being. There was nothing, nothing that was going to prevent me from finding her. In the same way that there's absolutely nothing that is going to prevent God from chasing and pursuing his children. Luke 19.10 says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. For the Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and save those who are lost. A lot of times, a lot of times I open my messages on uh, Wednesday nights with the students or uh, Sunday morning maybe with the preteens or students or whatever group I'm teaching and I'll share like a silly question or I'll kind of throw something out like in the, in the world there's only two types of people. All right, I'll throw out one of those and then I'll insert whatever ridiculous statement I want to for the week. And uh, so I'll say like there's two types of people. There's uh, people who like bacon and everyone else. Or I'll say something like there's people who like savory and there's people who like sweet and then there's me, the people who can't get enough of either. Or I'll say Pepsi, Coke, there's people who love the Patriots, there's people who like their team to lose. Um, we, we say, unless it's February in the Super Bowl and Connie's team wins, right? Like, um, but like, I'll just say something and it's kind of gets, it stirs, th the goal is to stir things up a little bit. But here's the thing, when we read this passage, for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost, sometimes... Sometimes we think like there's so much emphasis on, on loss that we lose sight of the fact that there's also emphasis on what is already saved. And, and so what I want to talk about for a moment is this, is there's only two people 
when God looks at the world. There's only, there's, only, there's only two things that God sees. He sees saved and he sees lost. When God looks down at the world, he sees saved and he sees lost. It's that simple. It really is that simple to him. But here's the thing. Both of them imply, both words, saved and lost, and imply an intense, uh, excuse me, an immense amount of value. So here's the thing. You can't lose something if you weren't planning on saving it. And you wouldn't save it if you weren't terrified of losing it. Let's just think about that for a second. You don't save something because, excuse me, you don't save something that you weren't already planning on losing, or I'm jacking myself up. That's how complicated this is, right? You can't lose something that you weren't already saving, and you wouldn't save something that you were scared of losing. Like, there's, there's this value there. There's value there, okay? And, and if we go to Luke 19, look at that. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. And, and so he cares about the lost, but he also cares about those that are saved. And this is what Jesus did. This is what he's still doing today. This is the what. But we need to look at the why as well. Why did God send Jesus into the world? We know in John chapter 3, it says, For God so loved. You guys are good. For God so loved the world. We are this throughout all the scripture. God so loved the world. He gave us Jesus, his only son, that so we could have life and we would not perish. We'd have eternal life. He's come so that we can have life and we can have it to the fullest. God loves us. For the Son of Man loved us so much. He came to seek and save those who are lost. The why, no, what? Love is why God sent Jesus to seek and save the lost. And love is what causes us to seek and save what is lost as well. I love Ava. That's why I went to find her. If I didn't love her, I wouldn't go to find her. Love is what causes something to seek and save it. Okay, does that make sense? All right. So that being said, let's get right into Luke 15. Uh, page 868 in your Bibles. There are Bibles on each of your chairs. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, consider that our gift to you. Uh, you can take that. If you want, you can follow along on the screen. We'll have some of the text up there. Um, or you can follow along on new version events. So I'll give you a second to turn there. I should hear lots of pages right now. Or not. Luke chapter 15. While we're turning there, this passage of scripture is often referred to as the lost and found passage of the Bible. And depending on the translation you read, the words lost and found can be found up to 10 times used together uh, in only 32 verses. This is the lost and found passage of scripture. In this chapter, we hear Jesus tell three stories. Jesus always spoke in sto uh, often spoke in stories, uh, we call them parables. And he shared three stories or three parables, the story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and the story of the lost son. And sometimes we refer to this uh, last one as the prodigal son. Three very different stories, extremely different stories. One's about a sheep, one's about a coin, one's about a person. Very different stories, all with the same point, though, that you matter to God, that you matter to God, regardless of how you're separated from him. In these stories, the shepherd, which we'll hear about in the first story, the woman in the second story, and the, the father in the third story all represent God. The sheep, the coin, and the son all represent you and I. So real quickly, let's go through them. The lost sheep. There's a particular shepherd who is responsible for about 100 sheep or so. I'm not sure why it's 100, but it makes the story easy. Every day, he wakes up, the sun comes up, and he opens the gate to the sheepfold, and he lets out his sheep. And they go out one by one, all hundred of them, and they do what sheep do. I'm not sure what sheep do, but they do something. So they go out into the fields and they're out there all day long. 
And then as the sun starts to come down, what does the shepherd do? He herds his sheep, and he brings them back over to the sheepfold, opens the gate, and one by one, one, two, three, I'm going all the way to 104, five, no, 98, 99, 100. Gate, close, all set, everyone's safe, everyone's secure. And he does it again the next day. The end of the day, 97, 98, 99, 100, all is well. Until one day, he's bringing his sheep in, 97, 98, 99. One's missing. There's a sheep that is missing. There's a sheep that is missing. Have you ever thought about why he counts the sheep in the first place? So he knows how many are missing, but why would he care what's missing? Because it has value. It doesn't matter that there's 99 safe sheep. There's one that's missing. So what does he do? He goes out. He leaves the 99 saved sheep and goes out in search of the one. He goes out in search of the one. When Ava was missing, not once, not once did I think to myself, well, I got Katie, Emma, Addie, and Frankie. <laughs> right? Like if I thought that, we, they're awful. Right? And, and, and so... Like sometimes you read that story, like it's a sheep, but no, it's a sheep. It had value. It mattered. And even though there was 99, there was one that was missing. So he went out in search of that one sheep. He went out in search of that one sheep. Every single one matters. Every single person has a name. Every single name, a story. Every story was a story Jesus was worth dying, uh, willing to die for. So the shepherd goes out in search of the one, searches all night, finds it, and brings it back to the rest of the sheep. And what we hear in verse uh, 6 is this. What we hear in verse 6 is this. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I have found my lost sheep. What does he do? He celebrates because he found the one. He found the one sheep that mattered. The scripture doesn't tell us how the sheep are lost. And, and I kind of wonder this, but as I did some research and I started thinking about this some more, he didn't have to explain how the sheep was lost because he was talking to a lot of people that would have understood, uh, understood sheep. I don't understand sheep, but they did. So I, I did a little bit of reading. And, and they understand that sheep naturally wander. They have this tendency to wander. They're outside of the sheepfold. They're grazing for the entire day. And all of a sudden, the sheep doing whatever sheep do, they look over and say, oh, the grass is pretty over here. And I'm going to go over here. Oh, there's a patch over there. There's another patch. Oh, there's some water way down there. I'm going to go down there. Oh, look, a butterfly. Right? And they just, they just wander off. Sheep wander. They naturally wander. The sheep did not intend to get lost. The sheep wasn't strayed away by anything other than his own curiosity. The sheep was strayed away by his own curiosity. It was natural. And it's natural for us. It's natural for us to wander. I was talking with a couple of friends yesterday at a cookout. And I was talking about how we go camping at this place in Wareham, Massachusetts called Maple Park. And uh, I go to the same, single, uh, the same campsite that I went to as a little child, and it's awesome. We still go there now as a family. And uh, it's funny, every single time we get there, we set up camp, and then we finally sit around the fire. And I sit down, and I look at this one particular tree. And, and the reason that tree is important to me is because when I was Frankie's age, I literally got tied to that tree. It explains a lot about who I am. This is true. I was literally tied to a tree as a kid. And <laughs> you should probably figure that out, huh? Um, 
but I was tied to a tree, not because I was a bad kid, but because I was a curious kid. I wandered. I wandered. I would climb trees. I would go through paths. I'd be like, oh, there's a rock. Oh, there's another rock. There's a rock. There's dirt. Let me follow the dirt. And, and I would just finally eventually end up somewhere on the other side of camp all by myself. So what did my parents do? They said, well, we can't let this happen. So they literally tied a rope around my waist and tied me to a tree. It worked. It worked. I didn't mean to do it. It just happened. See, here's the thing. We don't wander on purpose. It's just our nature to wander. It's in our nature to want to be creator of our own lives. It's in our nature to want to follow our own paths. We talked about in the very beginning, God created us in his perfect image, right? We are created in the image of God, and God is the what? The creator of all things. So it's natural for us to, be, want, to, create, to want to be creator of our own lives. It's very natural for us to want to be creator of our own lives. But the fact of the matter is just because we're created in God's image doesn't mean that we're God. We have to resist that temptation. We're not creator. Isaiah 53, 6 says this, All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. But how great is it, all of us like sheep, straight away, but how great is it that we have a God that loves us so much, he will pursue those who are lost because of their nature. Because of the fact that they wander not because of any intention or they want to, just because that's who we are. He pursues us anyway. He pursues us despite that. You didn't intend to end up where you are. You didn't intend to end up disconnected from God, but you are, and that doesn't matter to God. He is going to pursue you the way the shepherd pursues the lost sheep. And when you're found, what does he do? He celebrates. The lost coin. There's a woman. She has 10 valuable coins. I don't know what denomination they are. Uh, they're just valuable coins. Somehow, Somehow one of them gets lost. It's not misplaced. It's lost because it has value. She doesn't think to herself, well, I have nine kids. I mean, excuse me, I have nine coins. Let me, I, I could disregard the one. No, she searches for it. She tears her house apart. The couch cushions are all, all over the place. When, when I'm trying to find something at home, you should ask Katie. I literally tear everything. If I'm trying to find a pair of jeans... Like, I literally take everything out of my wardrobe. If I'm trying to find, like, a, per, a specific charger, I'll take everything out of our junk drawer. It's all strewn over the house. Like, when you're trying to find something that matters to you, you find it. It's like the, the TV remote at the end of the long day. Yeah, that resonated. All right? You know what I'm talking about? You're like, you, all you want to do is watch a show. All you want to do is watch a show. Um, she, she's going frantic. She's looking for this. She doesn't give up, though, until she finds the lost coin. And when she finally finds the lost coin, what does it say? Verse 9, it says, And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and her neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I found my lost coin. What was lost, what was found, and she celebrated. What does she do when she finds what's missing? She celebrates. She throws a party to, cel a party to celebrate a lost coin. Now, here's the thing. We're not sure how this coin was lost. I want to talk about this for a minute. We don't know how the coin was in fact lost. Perhaps there was a small pouch and it had a little hole in it and it fell through and it was lost that way. Or maybe she had change in her pocket and she had 10 coins in her pocket and she laid down to watch an episode of something and it fell out of her pocket. Maybe she was riding on a donkey. I, I, I don't know. But she lost the coin. Maybe there was a coin on her table and she's doing something at the end of a long day, and all of a sudden, it just falls. I don't, I don't know what the circumstances are in which the coin fell, in which she lost the coin, 
But what I do know is this. It was an unfortunate circumstance that maybe accidentally knocked it off the table or had it slip through the pouch or out of the pocket, whatever it may be. Has an unfortunate circumstance ever knocked you off the table? Has an unfortunate circumstance ever disconnected you from God? In my life, I'm a young, relatively young man, but in my life I've seen a lot of tragedy. I've experienced personally a lot of tragedy. I've experienced a lot of tragedy through those that I care about deeply and love. A lot of unfortunate circumstances, if you will. And the one thing that I've learned through all of it is this. Is that when life throws you something that you weren't expecting, where there's an unfortunate circumstance and you get knocked off the table, one of two things happens. You either take a step towards God or you take a step away. You either lean in or you lean out. You lean in or you lean out. And, and what happens is something else happens. And you either lean in or you lean out. And before you know it, you're either right at the feet of Jesus or you're as far, as way as you, as far away as you could possibly imagine. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and circumstances have come your way that have forced you to turn your back or made you turn your back on God. And you don't really know how you got here, but it just seemed to be one thing after another after another. But the good news is this. We have a God who still pursues you. We have a God that pursues you and pursues those who are lost because of their circumstances, almost despite it. God pursues the lost sheep despite its wandering nature. God pursues the lost coin. God pursues you despite the unfortunate circumstances that come your way. And lastly, the lost son. Sometimes, again, referred to as the prodigal son. A wealthy man, he has two sons. Obviously an older son and a younger son. And one of the younger sons has the audacity to go to his father and say, Dad, this, just, this isn't working for, any, for me anymore. I'm, I'm bored. I'm not enjoying this lifestyle. Um, so rather than have resentment towards you I'm just, and, and wait for you to die, I'm just going to ask you now for my, my birthright. I'm going to ask you now for my inheritance. Would you mind splitting uh, everything that you have and giving me my half now? That'd be, that'd be wonderful. I can't imagine as a father what that would be like, but the father, the father is not going to force his son to stay. The father takes his possessions and divides them appropriately and gives his son his half of the inheritance. And the passage tells us that within a couple of days, the son has his, all, all his things gathered and he goes out and he lives a wild lifestyle. I don't know what a wild lifestyle means, but I can, I can guess. If this was in modern day, I imagine the story would go something like a young man came into a large sum of money, he just turned 21 years old, and he decided to move to a big city like Los Angeles or New York or Las Vegas, and uh, it was only a couple months' time before all that money was gone, and when the money dried up, the friends were gone, and when the friends were gone, he was left on the streets. He was left on the streets. He ends up, in the story, he ends up getting a job feeding the swine and living, literally living in a pigsty. And the, and the passage tells us that he longs for the food that the pigs are eating. He looks at what the pigs are eating with jealousy. Now to us, we look at that and we say, oh, well, that kind of describes something. But to the people that were reading this, 
Think of a kosher Jew. This would have stirred something up inside of them that you and I can't even fathom. Living amongst the swine. This was as bottom as bottom could be. This was complete disconnect from this father. There was a separation that you can't even begin to imagine. And it's in that, it's at the bottom of the bottom, the bottom of the barrel, as far down as this young man could possibly get in his life, that's when he has this moment of clarity. There's nowhere else to go but to look up. So he has this moment of clarity. And in verse 17, he says this. When he fi- it says this. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare. And here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both you, excuse me, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. I can't even imagine the long walk home, the guilt and the shame, all the possessions gone. I can't even imagine what that must have been like. Is my father going to accept me? Is he going to forgive me? What is my brother going to think? All, oh, just wearing it on his shoulders. But listen to what happens in verse 20. So he returns home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Think about that for a second. He was a long way off. And his father saw him coming. You know what that means? That means that his father was waiting for him to come home. Day after day after day, he was waiting for his son to just turn around and look back in his direction. And what happens next? Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, he embraces him, and he kisses him. Day after day after day, he was waiting for his son to return. And as soon as he saw a glimpse of his son coming back, he ran to him. It didn't matter what he had done. It didn't matter what he'd been through. It didn't matter that he lost everything. His son was home. His son was home. So he throws the party of all parties in verse 23. We must celebrate with a feast, for my son of my, uh, the son of mine was dead, and he is now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party begins. Let the party begin. See, sometimes, sometimes we are disconnected from God because of choices that we make. Not because of unfortunate circumstances, not because of our natural desire to be curious and wander, but deliberate choices. There are choices that you and I sometimes make that disconnect us from God. He chose to leave home. He chose to turn his back on his family. He chose to follow his own ways instead of God's. He chose to waste all of his money. They were his choices, nobody else's. And, but even still, God pursued him. And even still, God pursues us. God pursues those who are lost because of their choices. So whether you're disconnected from God because you wander, or you're disconnected from God because of an unfortunate circumstance, maybe some uh, tragedy had come your way, or maybe it was a deliberate choice, it doesn't matter. God still pursues you. Our wandering nature separates us. Our circumstances separate us. Our choices separate us. But even still, God pursues. He pursues us because we have value. Just because the sheep was lost didn't mean it didn't have value. Just because the coin was lost didn't mean it didn't have value. Just because the son was lost didn't mean it didn't have value. In fact, I would argue when something goes missing, its value increases. We see that around us all the time. The rarer something is, if we lose something, if we miss it, all of a sudden, that value goes up. The value goes up. Just because something's lost doesn't mean it doesn't lose value. And the beautiful thing about all of this is this, that when you're lost and when you become found, 
there's this celebration that takes place. And the reason I believe there's a celebration that takes place is because there's absolutely nothing that could ever separate you from the love of God. When the lost become found, we celebrate because there's nothing, nothing in all of creation that could ever separate us from the love of God. And that is worth celebrating. That's worth being excited about. That's why Paul says in Romans, in in chapter 8, it's a very familiar passage, it says this, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry, destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. And I am convinced, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And here's the thing, if there is nothing that can separate you from God's love, that means there's nothing that can separate the person sitting next to you from God's love. I want you to think about that for a moment. The implications of this truth are so, so deep. If there's nothing that can separate you from that love that God is willing to do anything to seek and to save what is lost, that means he's willing to do the same thing for the very person sitting next to you. Or maybe it's the person across the room or across the aisle. Maybe it's a colleague that you don't see eye to eye with. Maybe it's someone that's hurt you immensely or someone that's taken something from you. It could be a family member. It could be a friend. I don't know what that is. Maybe it's flat out an enemy. But there's nothing that can separate you, which means there's nothing that can separate them from God's love. And if we're to love other people the way that God has loved us, we're called to love them. People matter to God, all of them, rich or poor, young or old, educated, addicted, the CEO, and even the person that gets let go. They matter to God. The question this morning is, do they actually matter to you as well? That's what we need to think about. That's the question we need to ask ourselves. Do they matter to you as well? Do we love people the way that God does? Or do we look first at their lifestyle, look at their circumstances, and then maybe look at their choices, and then make a decision whether or not we're going to choose to love them the way that God does? Do we allow nature and circumstance and choice to impair the way we love people around us? It's not how we're called to love. A new command I give you in John 13, it says, Love each other just as I have loved you. That's how it's supposed to be. That's how we're supposed to love. We're called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We're called to love just like Jesus loved. And what if we were able to look past the circumstances and saw them the way God does? What if we were to allow our heart as a church to be broken by the very things that breaks the heart of God? What would that look like? What if we were to take the time to learn that person's name? What if we were to take the time to learn that person's story? What if we were to take the time to then step into that story? What would that look like? Because here's the thing, every story was a story that Jesus was willing to give his life for. Every story was a story that Jesus was willing to give a life for. 
What if we as a church were willing to leave the 99 in pursuit of the one? If we want to live fully alive, church, if we want to live fully alive, if we want to experience life and experience it in the fullest possible way, we need to live every day like people matter because they matter to God. Amen? Amen.